the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. So glad you're with us here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, the word in Orlando. Alan Dempsey uh, does our engineering so beautifully. We'd never get on the air without him. And Andrew Hurtlisk is our producer. And Allison Allen is our guest. She's in Nashville. Uh, Her book is out with Ravel. Thirsty for more. Discovering God's unexpected blessings in a desert season. Allison, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm so fabulous today. Thank you for having me on, Pat. What, by the way, Allison, that subtitle, what is a desert season? What does that mean? Yeah, you know, I define a desert season as those somewhat dry and disorienting spiritual seasons that we sometimes as believers walk through with Jesus. I think we've all had them. Um, You know, I think uh, the Psalms really encapsulate this where, you know, David says, I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I think all of us can have those moments, even while intimately walking with Jesus and loving him and being in fellowship and in the scripture where we feel um, dry, spiritually speaking. And sometimes for many women, as I've spoken to them, they can even feel this sense of distance between themselves and Christ. And even though I, I say, you know, the Bible says Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us, there are those times when the felt, tangible presence of God seems a bit distant. And so uh, I walked through one of those seasons myself, and um, as, we, as we were pregnant with our second child, and I had bed rest for three months. And those three months for me, Pat, became a desert season. And what was so amazing was what on the outside looked so dry and desolate and disorienting actually wound up being a wellspring of blessing in Christ, and that's the heart from which the um, book sprang. Uh, Your first chapter is called Spiritual Deserts and Leather Couches. What's that about? Yeah, exactly. It is about that bed rest uh, situation that I was referring to. I, uh, Jonathan and I, my husband, we uh, found ourselves mir- kind of miraculously and unexpectedly pregnant at 41 years old after, I would say, seven or eight years of secondary infertility. And um, at about 20 weeks, we had a medical emergency where the pregnancy structure wasn't holding. And so they did emergency surgery here in Nashville. And then they informed me that I would be embarking on three months of bed rest. And, you know, Pat, I'm sure you can, can relate with this, but for a type A person like myself, um, being told that for three solid months you have to sit on a couch and, you know, yes, you can take care of kind of going to the restroom, but you can't do anything else. Nesting for this new miracle was out. Um, and, and what happened for me was even though the body of Christ kind of they stepped up incredibly and we didn't have any material needs. We had food. We had more casseroles uh, than I could shake a stick at. But it left me, Pat, with 
so many hours with me, myself, and I on that couch. And what I began to get a sense of was that God had actually led me to that leather couch because there were things that I had been running from for years and years and years, but I hadn't stopped in so long. And so he took me into this quiet, um, what I call a desert season, and began to do business with my heart. And so my leather couch uh, actually became somewhat of a desert for me, but the wonderful news is that Jesus actually met me there in intimate and um, and really, you know, life-altering ways. Then you go to the topic of desert whats and whys. Uh, explain. Yeah, you know, as I sat on that couch, there was a scripture that uh, I know I had read many, many, many a time, and it's out of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, out of Hosea 2. When the NIV version says, I'm going to allure her, and the her there is, the nation, the people of God, Israel. But it says, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert to speak tenderly to her. And then God goes on to say, I'm going to give her back her vineyards. I'm going to make the Valley of Achor, which means trouble, a doorway of hope. And then he goes on to enumerate all these other blessings. And what was so astonishing for me to see, um, at least in a new way, in a different way than I'd ever seen it before, was that it was the desert was the the place of incredible blessing. The other thing that jumped out to me is um, that phrase, speak tenderly to her. Some of the translations of Scripture say, speak comfortably to her. And comfortably, as as you trace that back to the original language without going down too much of a rabbit hole, in the original Hebrew, has the root of the word heart. And so to my mind, the way I read the scripture, it was like God was saying, I'm actually leading you to a place that looks dry and desolate into this wilderness season because I actually want to talk to your heart. I want to converse with the forces that you're not even aware of, Allison, that are running alongside your heart and a running show, so to speak. They're driving the wheel. They're, you know, they're behind the wheel. They're driving the car. And I want to lead you into the the desert that I could speak to your heart there in a way that I can't in other seasons, because um, for me, Pat, I just don't stop very long. And so that's the what was the desert season, but the why was this conversation with my heart that um, Jesus began to have. And, you know, when you sit down with Jesus and you begin to talk with him about the uh, little key truths in your life, you know, and I, I define little T truths for me as things that as a believer, they sound true. They ring true. I've said them for years. I believe them to the tips of my, you know, pedicured toes. But when you take those little T truths into the trying circumstances or weather conditions of the desert, at least for me, they were revealed to be counterfeit and they didn't really hold up with the, the nature and the character and the words of Christ. And one of those little key truths for me, because I have a background as a performer, I spent several years doing theater in New York, Broadway, and, and, and went to Carnegie Mellon for theater. And so I have obviously a bit of the um, performer that's rolled into my spiritual DNA. And when I went onto that desert couch with Jesus, Pat, I realized that for me, I had equated the favor of God with my perfect performance. 
you know, even after walking with Jesus for 25 years by that point. Mm. And it was like the Lord took me into a dry season where he said, you can't do a thing for me on that couch. You're not of um, obvious use in the kingdom. I mean, I prayed and, you know, I still met with people and that kind of thing. But it was like God was saying, "You're, I love you just the same. And my activity and my love in your life, those things are not for sale, Allison, by your so-called performance or your perfect behavior. And I know that um, that may seem simplistic, but as I've shared that around the country, it's astonishing, particularly how many women um, say, you know what, Allison, I think I maybe have a little T-truth that is similar to that. And it's just like the goodness of God and his heart for us, where he says, okay, so we got to get to that little T-truth so that you can understand that my love and my activity in your life is based on what my son Christ did on that hill over 2,000 years ago, and not how much you can act and sing and dance and perform in your spiritual life. And that began to set me free. Allison Allen is with us. Allison, what about that chapter simply called Preparation? Uh, what do you write there? Yeah, you know, this, this, this comes from a scripture I know I've heard a hundred times, I've read it a hundred times. I've probably heard many a sermon on it, but I never saw it uh, the way I did until the Lord led me to a desert season. And this was one of the deepest unexpected blessings of, of my particular desert season. You know, we, we, most of us, if you've been in Christendom for any amount of time, know about Jesus' desert battle with the enemy of our souls in Luke 4. And I've heard many a, many a wonderful teaching on, on those particular scriptures. But I had never, I don't know, it, you know, Pat, there are times in the scripture where you have a microscope on the scripture, and then there are times where you pull out for the wide-angle view. And it was like the Lord pulled out, um, pulled me out for a wide-angle view on Luke 4, and this astonished me. Jesus, being full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the desert. And then after the desert experience, it says that he, he leaves empowered by the Spirit. And I'd never seen the correlation. I'd never seen the relationship between being led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, into the desert, going through this desert battle, and then coming out empowered by the Holy Spirit. Allison Allen, our guest, author of Thirsty for More. Uh, We'll be back after this break here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Allison Allen is in Nashville, Tennessee. Thirsty for More is the name of her book. Uh, Allison, you do a chapter simply called Provision. What does that mean? Well, um, you know, many of us have have heard the stories of the desert manna um, as the children of Israel uh, Mm -hmm. were in in the desert prior to entering the Promised Land. And uh, there's an odd scripture, at least it's, it's a little bit interesting to me, odd to me in Deuteronomy, where God says, uh, I, I led you into the desert, I caused you to hunger that I might feed you. And as I started in my own desert season, I realized that I had become an expert in self-provision. 
And sometimes I think the Lord leads us into a dry land, very much like the children of Israel, where we can begin to examine the, the spiritual food, if you will, that we're feeding ourselves. And I realized in a lot of ways I was, um, I was trying to sustain myself on empty calories. And God, God started to show me that, um, to reveal the quality of the food. You know, I, I kind of liken this lesson to Mother's Day when, you know, kids make you uh, breakfast as a mama. And maybe, you know, if you're, if you're lucky, it makes it to your bed before you get up for the morning. And it's, you love it because your kids made it. But if that went on every single day, the runny eggs, the bad, bad coffee, or whatever uh. the meal happens to be, eventually you would throw down the mama card and say, I've got to take back over the food preparation in this household. That's exactly what God did for me. And he, the only way I believe, Pat, he could show me that was to sit me down in a desert season and say, we've got to look at the quality of the spiritual food, and we need to make some adjustments here. I also believe his provision is actually pro or in benefit for the vision, as in P-R-O dash vision. And so I needed um, to examine the quality of the food I was feeding myself on spiritually so that I could actually go to long haul with Jesus. And that leads to another uh, one-worder. It's called perspective. Yes, perspective. The way, the way that I had spent so much of my life seeing things, you know, Paul says, in, in the New Testament, oh, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. It, 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 to me, it's almost like Paul is praying for the eyes of their hearts to be open. You know, that song that we sang over and over again so many years, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And there were very um, many things that I didn't see rightly. In my own heart, Pat, I had lost my mother um, to pancreatic cancer, very, very swift battle, very, very, um, a very, very deadly battle, obviously. And I, I had some, I had some, probably some hidden, I guess I would just call it hidden disappointment and, and, and even hidden anger, uh, with the Lord, you know, and I believe the Lord can, he knows anyway. And so anything that we're confessing, anything that we're experiencing he already knows that, and he is a loving father, and he's always right there to help us sort through those things. And I believe those things, those wounds that I had never given air, you know, your mom always said, let that cut get some air. I'd never allowed those wounds to get spiritual air, and they had actually skewed the way that I saw things. There was always um, a bit of hedging my bets or preparing for the worst or um, carrying around a sense of fear, what's around the corner. And the Lord began to come in and shift my perspective by putting his hand underneath my chin and tipping the eyes of my heart toward him. I love that Hosea talks about being the apple of his eye, which means to be the center point of his pupil. So many of us in the body of Christ think we're on the periphery, that we're invisible, that we're not seen, and God is saying, if you could just, if you could just lift that perspective, if you could lift the eyes of your heart, then you would see that you are not lost to me, that I have not forgotten you, and that I see you through the lens of my Son. And when you begin to get a fresh revelation of that, Pat, it changes the way you see the world and the way through which you move through the world. 
How about the topic of rest? Well, this is a doozy. This is a doozy, Pat, because as I mentioned earlier, I tend to be type A to the core. And I think of all the uh, misguided, um, you know, spiritual practices or, or sins that, you know, perhaps uh, beset the life as we walk through on this side of the terra firma. For me, one of the um, most prominent was my inability to rest. I just, um, I just was a train on a track, and I never ever stopped. And so, um, I, I, I really unpack in the book the story of Elijah. He's, he's, you know, won this incredible spiritual battle against the prophets of Baal, and the Word of God um, actually records that after this amazing victory, he runs a full day into the desert. And, um, you know, I've heard that preached a lot of times where um, he's just kind of lost his focus or he doesn't know who he is in God. But I actually see something that I think is pretty common um, for, for people in ministry, pastors, leaders, speakers, is that very often after God has uh, used you in any way, uh, the enemy will, I call it the backwards boomerang. For me, the, the hit doesn't come on the front end, it comes on the back end. And I think that Elijah is, is, is suffering from that kind of crash as he runs into the desert. There are a lot of things that go on in, in Elijah's desert journey as he goes on up to the mountain to meet with God. But before that happens, Pat, the angel of the Lord comes to him and twice tells him, rest, eat, and drink. And then when he wakes up from that first rest and it hasn't restored him, the angel of the Lord says, do it again. And there is something so full of the care of God in that moment where he doesn't um, berate him. He doesn't preach a sermon to him. He just says rest. And I think many of us, uh, um, especially in the pace of the life in which we live, many of us um, need to hear the Lord whispering to our hearts, Rest your way into restoration. Sometimes I want the to-do list. I want to know what I should do. And God is simply right beside me saying, in this season, I need you to rest and trust. Be quiet. And, you know, in, in, in Isaiah, it talks about how in, in rest, our restoration will come. And so that's the heart of that chapter. What about Revelation? Revelation. Well, again, I continue on with Elijah's journey here, and as he goes on up in, in this desert journey, it's a, it's a long, long desert walk. I mean, it's a 40-day and 40-night journey, the Bible records, and I, you know, being a bit of an actor, I've always got a, a, a curious mind, and, and one of the things I want to ask when I get to sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb is, what was Elijah thinking in that long desert journey as he's going up to meet with God on the mountain? And I I think we get a little bit of a clue when he arrived in the cave and God uh, asks him a question. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I think that's very much like the question God asks of Adam. Where are you, Adam? Of course, God knows exactly where Adam is. It's Adam who doesn't know where Adam is. And when he answers the question of God, he sees the pain and the blame and the shame. And something similar happens for Elijah. When God asks him, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? And he kind of goes into 
I call it a monologue because I have the acting background, but he kind of goes into this uh, diatribe of um, disappointment and pain in ministry and um, feeling alone and feeling isolated. And I believe that in that moment, what he's expressing are um, kind of um, uh, unholy expectations. Had a pastor many, many years ago who said to me, I was a young, young woman starting out my faith walk in Christ, and he said, you know, Allison, um, I wasn't engaged, I wasn't married, but he was kind of helping me prepare down the line for when that time might come. And he said, you know, Allison, one of the um, most damaging forces on the earth that I see between couples are those unexpressed expectations, the things I expect of my, my husband or my um, you know, if, if you're a man, your wife, that I never, ever ex- expressed. And so I think Eliza's heart has been full of those unexpressed, painful expectations of God. And so he spits the poison out. And the revelation that comes to him, you know, God tells him, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to anoint this person. I want you to anoint this person king, and this person's going to take over. Uh, you're going to hand the mantle of your ministry down. But that doesn't come, that doesn't come, Pat, until Eliza spits out and reveals to God and to himself the things that are actually in his heart. And man, when you do that, then the next chapter, um, or at least for me, the next chapter of the spiritual season becomes really uh, much easier to walk into. Allison Allen, our guest, Thirsty for More, the name of her book. Allison, next topic, Intimacy. Intimacy. Well, I kind of uh, mentioned the apple of the eye uh, earlier in our talk, and and this one to me is um, of all the of all the blessings that I received on the desert couch. I think this one um, has to be the the pinnacle for me. You know, I have um I have a bit of a, a story growing up. My growing up years just had some painful social events, like I think most people have, but what what that did to me, Pat, was it, it made me kind of want to be, uh, to operate through life um, invisibly. And that's a little bit hard physically because I am six feet and bare feet. I always joke I'm 5'12". And so mm. physically I couldn't be invisible. But I, I tried to be invisible. I remember slumping at, at Carnegie Mellon where I went to acting school. That was one of the notes I heard the most. Be as tall as you are. Stand up straight. I remember wanting to just disappear for much of my uh, young school life, and I carried some of that, Pat, into my walk with Jesus. Um, I wouldn't have said it out loud, but I really had a deep, um, just maybe a deep unhealed wound that um, I I, I thought that I was a bit invisible to God, um, like His love was for the girl next to me but not really for me. He couldn't really be pleased with me and and adore me, even though I could have quoted all the scriptures uh, about numbering the hairs on her head and every day of my life written in his book before one of them came to be. But in my emotional heart, my young self that I think many of us carry around with us, that unhealed place, I felt felt totally invisible. And the Lord began to, uh, in that quiet space where it was just, me, myself, and I, and the triune God on that desert couch, God began to, to say, I, I want to see into you. 
which is the greatest definition of intimacy I've ever heard. Um, I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but uh, many have defined intimacy as into me see. And when I finally kind of uh, laid my fighting, my boxing arms down with God and allowed him to see all of me, it was astonishing um, how much I I understood afresh, uh, how deeply and how intimately I was loved. What do you write about solitude? Well, solitude for me was tricky. It's related. um, It's related to rest, but it's, it's a bit it's a bit different in that when I sat on that desert couch and went through my desert season, I really kicked against the goads of being, being alone, being by myself. Um, now, you know, as I, as I kind of said earlier, the body of Christ was incredible. I didn't want for a pop seed casserole. Uh, you know, I, I would have more coffee visits than you could shake a stick at, but you know, you can imagine that even with all that activity, it still left me with most of my hours in the day, alone. And I, um, I fought against that sense in my flesh or in my emotions of being lonely and alone. And then the Lord, in the way in, in which only the Lord can do, began to move me, Pat, from loneliness into solitude. And the greatest lesson I learned that I talk about in this chapter is that loneliness is the absence of people but solitude is the presence of God. And um, of all the, all the blessings that, um, that I could have received, this one was the most hard-fought and won for me. Allison Allen has been our guest. Her book, Thirsty for More. Uh, we'll be right back. We've got more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word, right here in Orlando, Florida. Allison Allen, our guest in the first segment from Nashville, uh, talking about her book, Thirsty for More. Uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer is with us. Longtime pastor at the famous Moody Church in Chicago. His new book is out, The Church in Babylon. Uh, Erwin, so good to co- talk to you. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be with you again, Pat. God bless you and uh, your many listeners. The Church in Babylon. What, what does that title mean? Well, you know, when I looked at the Old Testament to try to find a good picture of the church, it's difficult to make the transfer because Israel was a theocracy. But I think that the best example is when Israel was in Babylon, and they were a minority in the midst of a pagan majority. And they had lost their king, they had lost their land, and now they had to survive. And I see ourselves in that today, Pat, because there are so many instances where we are indeed a minority in the midst of a country that seems to have lost its way. And so that's why the subtitle is entitled Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness, because God has called us to this moment, to our Babylon, and in that way we are supposed to be faithful. And and I make the point that we're not necessarily called to success, we're called to faithfulness. 
And uh, what I want to do is to help us to understand what that means in our generation. Uh, You've got a chapter early in the book, A Light to the City, A Heart for God, Finding God in Enemy Territory. Uh, Fill us in on that. Well, you know, when you stop to think of it, you realize that uh, when Israel was in Babylon, God, through Jeremiah, gave them specific instructions as to how they were to live. And, and some of these instructions are a little bit surprising. Many of the false prophets have said, oh, we're not going to be in Babylon very long. And uh, Jeremiah said, no, build houses. He says, have families, which means that they must have had families with strong fathers in the midst of a pagan a generation of Babylonians. And uh, God says, uh, pray for the shalom of the city. Pray for the peace that people have, and uh, in this way, be my witnesses. And, Pat, what's really exciting is this, that even though Israel was in Babylon because of disobedience, the point is, God says, I sent you there to represent me and to live a life that will be a light in the midst of darkness. Now, they could have become angry, as some people were, They could have integrated with the culture, like many Christians do today, or they had the choice to indeed be distinct and yet be involved in their culture without being contaminated with it. I want you to talk about conflicts of conscience, keeping the faith in a hostile work environment. Well, when you stop to think of it, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, imagine this. They were able to accept part of their culture, and uh, they were indoctrinated, of all things, for three years in the Babylonian language, no doubt the Babylonian pagan religion, and they were able to take all that and yet stand for truth. But they did draw a line in the sand. For Daniel, it was a matter of uh, what he ate. Maybe it's because the king's food was not kosher. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were asked to bow before the image, they said no. And Pat, this is one of the greatest examples of faith in all the Bible. Mm. You remember what they said, we believe, O King, that our God is able to deliver us, and we even think that he will, but if he doesn't, let it be known unto you, O King, we will not bow. Mm. And when they were thrown into the furnace, they they didn't have the assurance that the fourth man was going to walk among them. So they had to live in a culture in which they could accept part of what was happening, but they also had to live in a culture in which they had to draw a line and say, we can't go this way. A good example is someone here in Chicago who teaches in the public school system. He says that... Um, He was told, it is not enough for you to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. If you don't celebrate it, you could um, lose your job. Well, that's a line in the sand. Mm. As a teacher, you might be able to tolerate it, but you can't celebrate what God has condemned. So conflicts of conscience in this chapter, I discuss various issues that people face today, and uh, they need to know, on the one hand, what to accept and what to reject. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is with us. When the state becomes God, 
standing strong while others bow. What does that mean? Well, once again, we're back to the story, you know, of the king putting up the golden image Mm -hmm. and saying people should bow. And, you know, throughout history, the state has often played the role of God. You think, for example, of the early uh, church in Rome. The reason that the Christians were taken to the stake or fed to lions is because Rome said, you must worship Caesar. So Rome was taking the place of God. The state was taking the place of our conscience. And when you study 2,000 years of church history, you discover that the church has always had conflicts with the state. And uh, when the state becomes God, so many lessons from this story. For example, one is that we need to teach people to stand alone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow. But uh, everyone, the Bible says, was in the plain of Dura. And there were 10,000 Jews that had gone to Babylon. Where were they? Uh, They uh, must have bowed. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our culture today, we need college students who are trained in a way so that they are able to withstand the pressures of culture. We need people who are willing to withstand the pressures of the law when our laws conflict with our consciences. And we can't allow the state to become God, even if it happens. We cannot submit to the state as if it is God. The church, technology, and purity, the courage to confront a deadly enemy. Well, in that chapter, Pat, what I do is I tackle a monster. And that is technology. Technology is almost instantly addictive. Mm. And I argue that it is destroying young people, many young people. Uh, Young people are not reading the way they used to. They're not talking to adults. Mm. They're spending their time on their iPhones, and we as adults are doing the same thing. So technology has become so pervasive, and we believe the myth that it's neutral. I argue that it's not neutral. It is weighted against us, even though we use technology for the gospel, obviously. And so when I discovered that it was pornography that really fueled the whole Internet worldwide, and someone who was in the know told me that, I began to realize that this was a monster that the church could not possibly, the church could not possibly avoid. It was so important for us to speak to families, to speak to the church, and to try to answer the question of what can be done in the midst of a culture that has become obsessed with technology, with videos, with uh, video games, some of which are fine, but others of which lead children into the occult or into pornography. And um, I argue that pastors should not stick their heads in the sand. We need to be able to confront this and to do it with with, uh, some understanding. So I believe very deeply that this chapter—see, what I did, Pat, was I looked around and I said, what is our Babylon today? And that's why I deal with these various issues in this book. Dr. Erwin Lutzer, 
former senior pastor at Moody Church in Chicago. Our guest, his book is called The Church in Babylon. Uh, How do people get the book, Erwin? It's it's an important read to to fill us in. Well, I think the best thing to do is to go to moodymedia.org. Moody Media, of course, that's all one word. Very simple, though. Moodymedia.org. And when your people go there, they'll discover other resources, sermons, books. This book, of course, is available. It has a banner. And while they are there, they can also click on and see that we are going to Israel, God willing, in March of 2019, Mm. just a few months from now. And we still have some room. Some of the people may be able to join us. But go to moodymedia.org. And if you're interested in calling... 1-800-215-5001. Now, I'll give that number again because it was given too quickly, and there are some people who are just going for their pencils now. 1-800-215-5001. Erwin, it sounds you're busier now than when you were pastoring. Exactly. I'm traveling, uh, speaking in various places, speaking... Recently, I was in the Dominican Republic with a ministry there that is uh, geared to ministering to children. I've been at the Billy Graham Cove twice this fall teaching, Mm -hmm. but also other churches and seminars, and I hope to be able to invest the rest of my life in helping the next generation face the darkness. Chapter 6, Transgenderism, Sexuality and the Church, calling out the lies of the culture, Erwin? Yes. In this section, I'll get at the point very quickly by saying that there's a 53-year-old man who identifies as a six-year-old girl, so he has left his family, and he plays with dolls. Mm. Now, the question that I ask is this. Does he have a body problem Or does he have a mind problem? Obviously, it's a mind problem. It's not a body problem. And now we can transfer that to those who believe that they are transgender. And there's no doubt that there are some who feel as if they are transgender. I'm not denying that. But they have to see that the body is not the problem. To mutilate your body, to make it conform to your mind, is so often disastrous that uh, the possibility of committing suicide is indeed increased if you do that, as I show in this chapter. But what they need to do, and this goes for those who also struggle with same-sex attraction, what's so necessary is if there is no transformation of their desires or their mind, what they need to do is to live a celibate life. And uh, this is the calling of many people. If you cross those boundaries into sexual acts with others, it, it brings a backwash of guilt and emptiness and all kinds of things. Now, here's the thing I point out. We need in our churches to be able to emphasize that singleness is okay. In Isaiah 56, I quote these words where Isaiah is speaking, and he says to the eunuch, I'm going to stop there. If a boy grows up and he doesn't have natural attraction to girls, we generally say, oh, he must be uh, uh, self-sex, he has self-sex 
or I should say he has same-sex attraction. No, he might be a eunuch. Jesus said some are born that way. But anyway, back to the passage. It says these words, that if you are a eunuch and you keep my Sabbaths, in other words, if you obey me, I will give you an inheritance that is better than sons and daughters. So God wants, desires to be transformed. That's both for those who are same-sex attracted and those who believe they are transgender. But if it doesn't happen for the Christian, the answer is celibacy and singleness. And we need to be able to uh, have a safe place for teenagers in our day where they can talk about these things and know that they will not be, um, not be judged. Uh, they need a place where these things can be processed. Erwin, tell us what you write about Islam, immigration, and the church. But uh, first of all, we have a break. When we come back, balancing compassion and security. That's the seventh topic. Erwin Lutzer is our guest, uh, former senior pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. His book is out, The Church in Babylon. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. And remember, uh, faith comes by hearing, folks. Erwin Lutzer is with us. Uh, Erwin, before we get to that seventh topic, Islam, immigration, and the church, uh, to those people who are just tuning in, uh, fill us in on that information about this book, how to get it, and what's going on with you. Well, what's going on with me is I have a very busy schedule as Pastor Emeritus of Moody Church, speaking, encouraging, hopefully giving instruction to the church, to uh, people, to young pastors, and uh, so I'm very, very busy. But as far as this book is concerned, and by the way, Pat, I feel very deeply about it. I gave this book to Jesus when I was writing it, and I'd wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, what do you have to say to your church today? Mm. So it, in a sense, it's um, a legacy book, even though I hope to write others, but it's entitled The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness. People can go to moodymedia.org. That's moodymedia.org, where they can find out about the book and other resources, or call 1-800-215-5001. 1-800-215-5001. Moody Media, that's the place where people should go. Now, with reference to the chapter that you have uh, yes. referenced, Islam, Immigration, and the Church. I begin this chapter talking about Islam because I discovered that Islam has a very uh, clearly worked out theory of migration or immigration. Islam has a different calendar than we do. It doesn't go back to the birth of Muhammad or his death, but rather when he migrated from Mecca, from Medina rather, to Mecca to spread the faith. And what you find in the, in the Quran is encouragement and special blessing to those who uh, migrate 
And the idea is that this migration is a form of jihad. In other words, you migrate in order to spread the faith. And, uh, but the real other reason that I wrote this chapter, even as I expound on Islam, is to make a distinction that I think is so important, and many people, I think, are unclear on this. There's a distinction between the morality of the Church and the morality of the state. I heard a pastor say, in effect, well, the gospel says whosoever will may come, so we should have open borders that whosoever will may come. Well, the gospel says whosoever will may come. Our churches should say whosoever will may come, but that's not the role of the state. The symbol of the state in the New Testament is the sword, and the symbol of the church is the cross. So, the responsibility of the state is to have uh, to protect its citizens, to guard its borders, and to make sure that there is order and laws are followed. And you can't run a state on compassion. It, when, when a state can be compassionate, that's great, but you can't run a state on that. When it comes to the cross, of course, we welcome everyone. Someone as well said that when the uh, man, the Good Samaritan, when he was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho and came across the wounded man, he didn't say to the wounded man, are you here legally? What religion do you belong to? He helped him. And that's our privilege. And there are many churches that are building bridges to immigrants and various people from different countries. But that's the role of the church. But let's not impose that morality on the state. How would you like to run a state with the dictum of Jesus that you forgive your brother 70 times 7? That's an entirely different kind of ethic and rules to live by. So I clarify that, and of course its implications to today's debate is obvious. Five false gospels within the evangelical church. Erwin, what do you write here? You know, there are many false gospels in the evangelical church, but I hear this is my longest chapter in the book. I'll simply list them and speak about them briefly. Uh, first of all, the gospel of permissive grace. We live at a time when pastors cherry-pick certain passages of Scripture regarding grace, and uh, they don't balance it with the holiness of God or the justice of God or the judgment of God. And as a result of that, they believe, for example, that we don't even have to confess our sins because we're legally forgiven in Christ. They believe that there is now no wrath in God whatever, and uh, they basically offer people grace up front. It used to be that we would preach, people would feel convicted, and then we'd give them the immeasurable, wonderful grace of God. But today, people are given grace when they're not even sure that they need it. And this becomes imbalanced. And if I could summarize, it is simply this. Uh, you know, we could summarize it by saying, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, we have a great thing going. And I quote an ancient Puritan who said that grace is not sweet until sin is bitter. Well, very quickly, number two is social justice. You know, social justice may be the result of the gospel, but social justice is not the gospel. 
The gospel is not what we can do for Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus has done for us. And if we're not clear on that, the younger generation especially wants to say, oh, you know, we're into social justice. And we could unpack that more, but that is not the gospel. It may be the fruit of the gospel, but the gospel is individual conversion through repentance of sin and receiving Christ. The third is the New Age uh, teachings in our churches, even contemplative prayer. And I believe in contemplative prayer. We should contemplate when we pray. But many teachings of contemplative prayer also imbibe teachings of, um, of the New Age and Eastern religion. And I delineate some of the things that are happening in our churches that we had better watch out for. And then number four is the gospel of my sexuality. In other words, um, you know, whatever sexuality I am, God approves of it. And so you have the word love and inclusion and compassion all being defined in ways that are contrary to Scripture. And that's why so many evangelicals are accepting same-sex marriage. They simply draw their theology from the culture rather than the Bible. And finally, it's not so much a false gospel as it is, well, I guess it is, it's the false gospel of interfaith dialogue. And there I discuss the fact that there are churches that invite Muslims into their churches to have an interfaith dialogue. And there are certain rules. One is you never correct one another. Anybody can say whatever he likes. And I came across a book which I quote here in my book. It is a book written by Muslims for Muslims on how to make Islam palatable to Americans. And uh, I could read some of the things in the book, like Islam has always shown equal rights for men and women. Uh, Islam is a um, religion of compassion. And on and on it goes. And you and I, and Muhammad sought that Jews and Christians and others might all live in harmony. Well, you and I, Pat, know that that's not a picture of Islam at all. And yet this is being given to people, and they have a ready audience that's never seen a Quran, much less read it. And so our people today are very gullible, accepting this, and I expose all the dangers that are connected with this. Give me one minute in closing, taking the cross into the world. What are you right, Erwin? Well, I talk about the fact that we have to be willing, Pat, to own the offense of the cross. Today, everybody's offended because of this. They're offended because of that. Christians say, I don't want to witness to my neighbor because I might offend him. Well, the gospel is always an offense. We should not be offensive, but we should be willing to carry our cross and to do it with joy and know that that in itself may be an offense to the world. But we have to stand up. We can be silent no more. We have to draw people to Christ, even if we're called names or what have you. Dr. Erwin Lutzer has been our guest, author of The Church in Babylon. Uh, we've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Doc, that was great. That was great. Uh, uh- 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Pat. God bless you now. I wish you all the very best, sir. Same to you. Bye, thank Ar- you. Bye, Irwin. Yeah. Bye now. Bye. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Allison Allen was with us from Nashville talking about her book, Thirsty for More. And then Dr. Erwin Lutzer uh, talking about his new book, The Church in Babylon. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, my latest book is called Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Go up to Amazon. Always a wonderful way to order all of these books that we talk about. And in the meantime, uh, have a wonderful day tomorrow at church with your family and a great week ahead. Enjoy our nice winter weather here in Central Florida. And we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM. And excuse me, an AM nine fifty the word in Orlando. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.